What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench, a podcast by Field Lab Media. It's your boy, Brandon Thomas. And on today's episode, we are sharing a special, in case you missed it, episode. One of our earliest guests was Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Over two episodes, Jonathan talked about democracy, overcoming toxic whiteness, and how American Christianity is the religion of slaveholders. In light of all that has happened in America over the last week or so, we decided to re-release that episode today as one extended interview. So listen in as Jonathan shares about how the religious right gained power in America by tethering itself to the Republican Party and finding not-so-subtle ways to perpetuate racism, sexism, and homophobic rhetoric in its political platforms. Now, before you get there, next Tuesday, KT and I are going to invite yet another special guest to the bench, my brother, my friend, Mr. Calfani Adisa Lawson. We'll continue the conversation that you'll hear today and have a discussion about the whitewashing of Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, legacy, and life. But for now, listen into our conversation with Jonathan Wilson. Heartgrove. Welcome to the Mourner's Bench. We're really delighted to have you here today. Oh my, thank you so much. It's good to be with you and good to be on the Mourner's Bench. It's been some time since the uh, good, faithful deacons and deaconesses of the church have brought me to the Mourner's Bench, but I am a Baptist and a revivalist my whole life long. So I'm familiar with the bench, my brother. Welcome. Let us pray and tremble. I hope that the spirit will meet us here this morning. Welcome. Yes. Uh, You wrote in 2018 that the claims and the practices of white evangelical Christians amount to a a kind of a slaveholder religion, a faith that oftentimes can stoke division and help to perpetuate racial animus. Your most recent book, Revolution of Values, talks about how the religious right has intentionally misused uh, scripture to, to reinforce racial and socioeconomic divisions. I'm wondering if we can just start with you kind of unpacking some of those claims and giving us a kind of a broad overview of how you see uh, Christianity being used and, and misused in American culture today. Thank you. Let me begin as a Christian and as someone who's spent my life studying theology just by saying that uh, everything that you said I've said is true and that I say these things as a Christian. (laughs) And I say them as a Christian who believes that evil only can work in this world that God created by corrupting what is good. And so my understanding of the sin of white supremacy in this story that uh, I was born into, this story that we are all caught up in together, is that it has been parasitic on Christianity and that therefore a central responsibility of trying to follow Jesus and be Christian in the American story is to untangle white supremacy from the faith which has been twisted and distorted and corrupted by that lie. So that's the work that I've been trying to do, both with reconstructing the gospel and uh, with revolution of values. In some ways, I think the, um, the former book, Reconstructing the Gospel, is about trying to grapple with the 400-year history of that you know, story. And this more recent book is looking more closely at the 40-year history of uh, the particular form that slaveholder religion has taken in Christian nationalism, largely through the 
advocacy and extremely large investment of those uh, corporate interests that built the religious right. How did we get here? How did this subversive, justice-oriented gospel of Jesus get mixed up with what you have named as you know white supremacy as the, this long sort of American history of, of racial animus? Well, the long story is that from the very beginning of the colonies in this place that we call uh, America, there was a willingness of white Christians to compromise with the subjugation of people. In particular, in the Virginia colony, it developed as the definitions of blackness and whiteness as a way of making African-American people perpetual servants of the uh, the white population. I think a lot of times people don't realize that, that these categories didn't exist before, right? But these were actually legal categories that grew out of the experience of a plantation economy being born in this place. The case law here is a story about a guy named John Punch. He ran away from his uh, indenture with some uh, lighter skinned brothers. <laughs> you know, there were a lot of people who were indentured. Brother Punch was a descendant of Africans, uh, had darker skin. And in the decision about how to punish these men for walking away from the terms of their indenture, well, the um, white folks were given the opportunity to complete the indenture with added years. Uh, the African-American man was given perpetual uh, servitude. And uh, this begins to be the development of racial identity, not as some sort of like cultural, you know, recognition that people are from different places, you know, uh, like different foods, have different family traditions, whatever. This was about basing the fact that you could own a person as chattel property on the color of their skin. And that's what developed here. And as it developed, Christian people grappled with this and realized that it would be a defiance of the system that sustained much of their life to oppose this. And so uh, even where their moral instincts told them that this was wrong, they uh, compromised and accommodated themselves to it. Think about the Virginia Baptists who met early 18th century and said, you know, based on their faith that no one could own a fellow human being. And then some of those preachers, you know, went back to their congregations. And of course, the, you know, largest tithers in their congregations were people who owned other human beings. And they informed them that, this was the uh, incorrect reading of uh, the text. And so at their next assembly, they changed their mind. These things are uh, a matter of record. And what happened with Christianity was then that the people who were paid to represent the church and to reason on behalf of the church uh, increasingly uh, twisted and distorted the faith to make it work along with uh, a system that enslaved other people. And that led to uh, a distinctly American form of Christianity that uh, has slaveholder religion all wrapped up in it. Now, that's not to say that there's not also truth and goodness and gospel in it, but we can't get away from the fact that that is at the very heart 
of the, the tradition of practices and of reasoning, you know, how we read the Bible, how we worship together that we've inherited. I'm struck listening to you talk about this really long history and how in a lot of ways it also parallels some of the things that we're uh, seeing and experiencing today in the year 2020. Yeah. Yeah. You do think of this kind of reasoning when you hear somebody say these days, I don't much like the president. I do like that my 401k is growing. It does echo the same logic. You wrote, I think not long after the election uh, in 2016, that you believed the the election of Donald Trump was essentially a, a choice that white evangelicals had to make between their two identities, their their whiteness and their evangelicalism, and really intentionally turning a, a blind eye to things that very clearly uh, contradicted or stood in the way of the the gospel that they claimed uh, for themselves. Yeah, and let's not pretend that it's uniquely about Donald Trump, peculiar character that he is. Uh, and let's be clear, you know, Donald J. Trump is a character that the precious child of God who was born to Fred and Mary Trump plays. Uh, you know, there is a human being in there and uh, I believe every human being is redeemable, but this brother has chosen to play a character. He played one on TV, you know, to, which is what kind of made him nationally famous, what gave him a platform. And, and now he plays a character that the, the religious right was part of building the scenery for uh, for 40 years. So, you know, this, uh, this ramped up explicit racism, uh, explicit strongman character, you know, explicit anti-immigrant and anything is justifiable as long as I say that I'm pro-life. I mean, he didn't write that script. He just plays the part. That was all set up for him. So I think a lot of the reckoning and, you know, while we're on the mourner's bench here, you know, a lot, a lot of what we got to deal with in this come to Jesus moment uh, is not just that people made a choice for Donald Trump in 2016. The people who made that choice, you know, were well set up for that choice. And we got to get up, we got to get behind that and get to the setup, you know, what created the conditions in which uh, someone so obviously offensive to our black Christian sisters and brothers, so obviously dangerous to so many of our Latino sisters and brothers, is nevertheless celebrated by so many of our white sisters and brothers. See, that's, a, that, that's the reality that we're dealing with. And it's not just about him. You know, he, he came along and he'll move on. But this, this whole thing, this whole story that has set up to pit us against one another, that ain't going anywhere. One of the things that I find really interesting is your own personal biography. Uh, so you talk very openly about being raised in a conservative Southern Baptist church in North Carolina. If I understand correctly, you also uh, worked for a, a brief time in Republican politics. And I, I find those points interesting in part because they resonate actually with my own life. I'm just really curious to hear you talk about kind of your own, I'm not sure if this is the word that you would use, but your own sort of personal conversion or the the awakening, the change that happened in your life and, and how exactly that unfolded. Yeah, well, it certainly is a conversion and an ongoing one. I think we got to get born again and again and again. I'm still a, a revivalist and a conversionist in that way. I was raised up by Baptists who taught me that, you know, Jesus 
is the most important thing in our lives. I very much believed that as a young person, and I very much believe it still. But what I didn't know at the time is that we were being targeted by a campaign to use our religion to line us up with the politics of a kind of reactionary conservatism. And the interest in that reactionary conservative, and by interest, I mean like the moneyed interest, the investment in that reactionary conservatism really didn't have a lot to do with advancing anything central to the teaching of Jesus, but it had to do with one, that you couldn't bind white people together as a voting block after the civil rights movement if you tried to bind them together as white people per se you had to find some other way to bind them together. Uh, that's my fundamental understanding of what the reactionary right of the late 1970s, early 80s was all about. It was about mobilizing white people to vote together, not in terms of their racial identity, but in terms of their religious identity. And so it became about voting your values, about the danger of you know losing traditional values, and, and the whole pro-life issue became the main organizing tool around that. That was part of, of what was happening. But the, the other thing was that the community I was raised in was largely, uh, you know, poor and middle-class uh, rural farming people who frankly had uh, a considerable interest in uh, many of the issues, like personal interest in many of the issues that black and brown people had raised that the women's rights movement had raised in terms of uh, our own well-being, right? Expanding, you know, uh, access to uh, health care, expanding access to, you know, high quality public education, things that these movements were working for. Well, frankly, right where I'm from, uh, the growing concern about the environment was hugely important because the um, uh, power company in this region had built a huge dam uh, and, and made a lake as a cooling station for a coal-fired power plant. And as I was growing up, uh, we were beginning to realize that the coal ash from that power plant was just being dumped in these ponds that were seeping into the water table and people around us were getting cancer at an incredible rate. There was a progressive movement that made real gains in the 60s and 70s and was pushing issues that would have actually, in many ways, helped our community. And what the reactionary conservatives realized was that uh, it was critical to find a way not only to get us to vote with other white people, but to get us to vote against those interests uh, for, frankly, the corporate interests, uh, you know, the interest of the folks who own the power company, in, in that case, I just laid out. And, and, and you couldn't do that by just telling people, look, you know, these companies are really good. They're, you know, they've got your best interests in mind. There had to be another way of talking about it. And so that was the alliance that was formed, this alliance between those corporate interests and this distorted religious narrative that told us that everything that was changing was actually going to hurt us. And that we had to band together and fight back against the, the change because nobody pretended that things weren't changing. I think what the reactionary right and the religious right that joined that movement realized was that you could tap into the racial fears of white people who saw the world around them changing and you could actually get them to ignore the things that would 
directly impact them and their families and, uh, and, and support, in many cases, politicians and political movements that didn't benefit them by, uh, by telling them that what was happening was taking away their, their culture and their way of life. So I grew up in that and was very much, you know, brought into that narrative. And as somebody who wanted to do everything I could for Jesus, I just assumed that I needed to become a Republican candidate for public office. That was kind of, you know, I, I wanted to ultimately be president. That's how I ended up working for uh, the senior senator from your state, Strom Thurmond, working in Strom Thurmond's office in D.C., kind of opened my eyes to this transition. Right? I mean, here's a, a a person who had actually been the you know Dixiecrat candidate for president. He he had campaigned explicitly on preserving segregation and the Jim Crow South. When uh, he realized that that was not you know politically viable, he crossed the Rubicon. He brought many Southern Democrats with him into the Republican Party, and he had become this kind of pro-life, traditional values, uh, conservative Republican uh, who appealed to people like the community that I came from. And I began to realize that this was a sham. <laughs> that it was really a con job, not. Uh, and, and I wasn't walking away from my community. I was mad for my community, right? The, the, the more I saw what was going on, you know, sit, sitting on Capitol Hill, seeing that, you know, the people who showed up day in and day out, the people whose interests we were serving were, were military contractors. They were corporate lobbyists. They were these right-wing organizations that had been uh, networked together in, in kind of shadowy ways, bringing together, you know, uh, Second Amendment activists with religious right activists with these, you know, corporate lobbyists. And this is who the so-called pro-life um, politicians were serving. That, that, that's who, you know, wh whose interests we actually, you know, voted on when the votes came down in the Senate. That opened my eyes to the reality that, you know, we, we'd really been had. And I didn't, I, at the time, I didn't understand all that, nor did I understand that there was any alternative to it. But it turned my stomach enough that I decided I couldn't be part of it. And so I started looking for another way to be Christian in public. I think a lot of other folks who have encountered the church's hypocrisy or its self-centeredness, its have just plainly decided that the church is, is not for them. They've just walked away from it. And yet you are an ordained minister. You continue to, to serve in Christian communities. It seems to me like you very clearly believe that the church is still worth fighting for. Why is that? Why, why not just walk away? Why not just give up on it? There are people who are walking away, and I should say there are people who walk away for good reasons. So, you know, anyone who is in an abusive relationship with a particular congregation, you know, where we're, we're literally the, the congregation and its leadership, you know, have manipulated them emotionally or physically. I've had dear friends who've been sexually abused by leaders in the church. In any of those cases, I, I have to be absolutely clear that I think it's a fateful decision to leave the abuse to uh, find the distance you need for simply for safety, right? To be able to be the person God made you to be. And uh, I pray in all those situations that people who get away from that kind of dangerous and violent uh, expression of faith community, I pray that they find 
safe community. And for many of us, we live and move and have our being in a world where we have to just uh, acknowledge that uh, all of our institutions, to some degree, are tied up in the messiness of this. Uh, but the the good news that God makes another way possible in this world, it happens through institutions, right? And so um, I don't think in mass or as a principle, we can give up on you know, the institution called church. I guess for me, it's a part of believing in the incarnation. The Bible tells us that in Jesus, God took on flesh and was present among us. And obviously, you know, Jesus saying, uh, you know, I'm going to go and send the spirit to be with you. Uh, Jesus also said, you will do greater things than I have done. And I, I take that greater to be a sort of a uh, a description not of the, the sort of a kind and quality of the things that we do, but rather the size, right? That, that, that Jesus, you know, ascends to the Father so that the Spirit can be present in a body that is not in one place at one time, but is all over the world all the time. That's kind of my understanding of what the church is. So I believe in the church, and I believe in the, the witness of a corporate, you know, body of people living out the way of Jesus, that's all screwed up in lots of ways, you know, all over the world. Jesus knew that that would be the case. You know, you can read the stories of his uh, time with the disciples and, you know, this sort of attempt to kind of cultivate a community that would live out this way in the world. That was messy. And the um, early accounts we have of the church are pretty messy. So I, I don't expect that the church has to be perfect in order for it to be God's instrument. But I do think we have to be honest about the ways that we're failing. And we have to commit ourselves to following the Spirit's lead. And one thing that means, uh, both in Scripture and in the present, is that those of us who are part of the institution that calls itself church has to be open to the ways that God is moving and revealing the truth and even what we need to be doing outside of the church. I think that's a huge part. Illuminating for me what the biblical text was, was talking about. You know, that this story of a people, you know, who were called to together to live a life with God and were in bondage in Egypt and were, you know, called out of that bondage into a liberative way that was supposed to be good news to the world. But, you know, uh, there's often a dynamic in the story of how People who think that they're insiders and have got it all figured out don't get it. So that you got to, you know, you got to hear it again, as Jesus said. You know, remember the widow at Zarephath. Zarephath's not in Israel. She was the one that had faith. Remember, you know, Naaman the Syrian. He's not an insider. He comes and he has to show show people what faith looks like. That's the sermon, you know, that got Jesus almost thrown off the cliff in his own hometown when he when he reminds the people. You know, after being celebrated for proclaiming God's good news, he reminds the people, look, it's often the folks outside who get this good news better than we do. And, of course, that had been the experience uh, 
at Jesus's very birth. It wasn't even the scripture scholars on their own who figured out that, you know, Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. The the Magi from the East had to show up and ask, you know, where's where this Messiah of yours to be born? Uh, because, you know, best we can see from looking at the stars and such, uh, there's something happening here. I, you know, I think this is another just basic scriptural principle that, that can help direct us. From Genesis, you know, the story of the Abraham's family all the way through, God hears the cries of people who are suffering, right? That's Hagar and Ishmael. That's Israel down in Egypt. That's the widow of Zarephath. That's who Jesus is drawn to. It's such a repeating theme that God hears the cries of those who are suffering and that God acts in this world on behalf of those who are suffering. You know, we sit in the church all the time and pray and ask God to be present and Say we want to discern how God's at work in the world. And sometimes I just get the feeling God is is probably wondering why we don't just do what God does. You know, listen to the voice of those who are suffering. And when you hear those voices, show up <laughs> and, and, and try to pay attention to what God is already doing in the midst of those struggles. That's, that, that's where I see really encouraging and powerful things happening that can demonstrate to the church what it means for us to be church. You mentioned Black Lives Matter, you know, 25 million Americans marched in the streets this summer to say Black Lives Matter. That's an incredible thing. It's reflective of a cry that obviously many people feel whether they directly are experiencing the suffering or they know someone who is. And, you know, it's not, it's not just black people. It's black and white and brown and you know, native folks standing together saying that there is systemic racism and injustice in this country. I mean, that, to me, that's a prayer. If millions of people walk out into the streets and cry out, this is wrong, that's prayer. That's begging God to change things. I think if the church is present and present to that prayer, uh, we can get a pretty clear sense of uh, what our vocation is in this moment. And especially in light of this you know, history we've been talking about, we can really grapple with the reality that if there is this systemic racism that's pressing down on the bodies of people, and for 400 years... We have been, in a very real and active way, a host body for white supremacy. Then we have serious work to do, both in terms of unlearning those habits of white supremacy and slaveholder religion that are within us, and in terms of you know learning how to practice an active anti-racist gospel, you know, in a world that is fighting, uh, in, in which there is a struggle, overcome racism. I think that's the moment we're in, and I think it's a critical, critical role that the church has to play. When we get down to the, to the root of it, for me, the reality is that white supremacy has created a systemic inequality that is unsustainable. It does and has for a long time uh, created violence, 
And it's unsustainable because it will create more violence. It's violence between people. It's increasingly, you know, a violence toward the earth. It's unsustainable. There's all kinds of ways, right, that this is a story uh, in which we're being propelled over an edge. But it's also increasingly clear to me that white supremacy and the systemic inequality that is connected to it cannot continue without the support of white Christianity. That's a political reality in this country, right? There are enough people who see and understand that this is an existential issue and who have joined together and have, you know, a political coalition that wants to change these things. The principal obstacle to that political coalition in this country is white Christians. And so, you know, to, to me, that, that makes the, the church's role all the more important. If the problem can't be sustained without white Christians, then white Christians have a central responsibility in terms of addressing the problem. I think we've got to grapple with the legacy of slaveholder religion in order to be Christian. But being Christian really, really matters because our compromise and unwillingness to uh, address slaveholder religion has created a situation in which we are hurting other people and we are hurting ourselves. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Hey there, it's KT. Each week, our goal is to bring you high quality digital content that engages the questions that shape our lives. If you are enjoying what you hear on the Mourner's Bench and you want to support the upcoming work of Theolab Media, please consider visiting patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media to begin making a monthly contribution. You can give us as little as $5 per month or up to $1,000 per month if you're feeling really generous. No matter the giving level, you'll get access to exclusive Mourner's Bench and Theolab Media content by donating. Again, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media to contribute. Let's get back into it. I wonder if you can talk specifically about the role of, of confrontation and about the responsibility that we as white Christians have to not tiptoe around the kinds of, of injustice that, that we see perpetuated over and over and over again. How do we confront what we know to be wrong, what we know we have been complicit in, and to do that in a way that reflects the goodness of, of Jesus. What, is that, what does that look like? I take the, um, the basic call of Christian witness to be in relationship with ourselves and with our neighbors in such a way that we love the good that is in everyone and that we challenge that which is harming others and ourselves. That's Christian witness. That's Christian discipleship. So I don't think that uh, we need to try to cut off relationships or to cut off people or to pretend that, um, you know, that there are bad people over there and the good people over here and that, you know, uh, the only hope is to sort of, you know, for the good people to somehow overwhelm or beat the bad people. I don't believe in that sort of 
Manichaean, you know, vision of the world that it's um, that it's all us versus them. I believe people can change. I don't just believe it. I've seen it. But I do think that one of the great habits of slaveholder religion that has brought us thus far, you know, on this 400 year journey is a kind of Christian politeness that doesn't address this stuff. So my sort of personal take on this is uh, I completely uh, understand that people don't agree with me. I'm happy to talk with anybody who who wants to about uh, why we must address the legacy of white supremacy and, and why that has real, you know, concrete consequences in terms of our personal and political decisions in the world today. I try to make those views very clear and I am aware that that being clear about that creates a kind of uh, animosity. You know, as a a white guy uh, from the South, you know, who has all the, you know, relative privileges that that comes, brings along with it in the society. uh, I I wouldn't say that I've, you know, faced much persecution in my life. You know, uh, people like me get sort of deferred to and treated probably better than we ought to be. Or, you know, at the very least, uh, we get the assumption that we mean well, which frankly, I think everybody deserves. However, being clear about the need for Christians to challenge white supremacy and to challenge Christianity's complicity in white supremacy has, in a very concrete sense, you know, sort of the thing you can measure, created uh, more personal attacks on me than, you know, anything else I've ever done. Only death threats I've ever gotten in my life are for trying to talk to Christians about this stuff. It's these, you know, right-wing, white nationalist, so-called Christian militia groups that have said, you know, we're going to show up at your house by this date and kill you. (laughs) I mean, this is the sort of communications these folks send. And, you know, I've, I've had to learn just how serious these people are and take the necessary measures in response. That's kind of where I am with this. I think we have to be clear I think we have to have an honest conversation in public about our complicity in what is wrong, and we have to uh, be willing to take real steps and measures toward uh, repentance and toward uh, trying to you know, build a better world. We have to assume that there are people who, for you know, the reasons that they have, are actively opposed to that and we have to not even demonize those people but to acknowledge that you know they're they're also not going to flock over and and join us anytime soon so uh, i don't spend a lot of time you know sort of trying to argue in particular you know in this sort of media culture that we have that exists to further exacerbate these divides and kind of is fueled by it. You know, there's a whole like independent media culture that's fueled by, oh, you know, this person said this against this person, this person says this back, you know, that kind of, I, I don't think that kind of fight is going to um, convince anyone. So I'm not interested in that fight. I'm interested in the long struggle to build a coalition of people who have a common understanding and who through education and relationship 
and the building of, you know, fusion friendships that are about taking risks and, and uh, uh, you know, partnering even with people who are unlikely allies. Uh, I'm interested in building the power that's necessary to change structures because all of the etiology, all of the lies, all of the wedge issues and the culture wars that are fought are fought to defend a system that keeps people in unequal access to uh, the goods of our common life. And I've been persuaded by the work of people like Ibram Kendi that if we change the structures of our common life in ways that make society more equal for all people, that that the uh, ideologies and the and the arguments that have been developed to justify those things are secondary. Uh, and and I and I feel like I've even seen this. You know, my, my my grandfather went from segregated schools to a desegregated military, and uh, he was a musician in the military, and uh, pretty immediately realized that uh, you know the the bands he was part of with African Americans from other parts of the country were good bands that he enjoyed, and then you know enjoying the music, he came to enjoy the people and. People sort of live their way into the thing that they've been told to be afraid of when the structures change in such a way that that's possible. And when they do, I, I, I don't think it's as easy to lie to them. That's, I think, the work that we have to do, not to argue and fight and try to prove people wrong who've been you know, caught up in an argument that's meant to justify the sorts of divisions we have. But to build with those who can see and to always be open to new people seeing in new ways how we have to challenge those systems in, in changing them, I think we make the tired arguments somewhat irrelevant. Many folks who are engaged in the work of social justice, who are, are trying in a variety of different ways to live authentically in response to the claims that the gospel has on their lives, and that can be a challenging and a draining and a frustrating and at times even a hopeless prospect. I'm wondering if, if we can end our conversation with a, a reflection from you about your own spiritual life, about the, the practices that you have cultivated, the, the spaces that you may turn to, the relationships that you may turn to mm. that nourish you, that sustain you, that, that animate this work that, that you're doing. Yeah, it's critically important. I was just thinking as you were talking there about Howard Thurman. He says, um, at the center of every person, there is an island. At the center of that island, there is an altar. And on that altar, there is a flame. Thurman understood the contemplative life, the life of prayer, to be about the work of tending that flame, right? What, like, what is it that keeps you going? What's, um, what's the fire at the heart of who you are? For me, prayer is a big part of that and um, gift of being part of that project to create common prayer uh, was that it, it grew out of conversations that I've had really over the past 15 years with the Benedictine communities. Um, they reached out to us when we started an intentional community here in Durham in 2003. Uh, they heard about it and sent a letter and said, you know, we're glad to hear that young Christians are living together in community. They said, um, 
you know, we, we live in community as Benedictines, but we don't have many young people these days. <laughs> they said, uh, but it is our experience that living together in community can be challenging. So, you know, if you have any questions that come up, feel free to reach out. We've been at this 1500 years. And uh, we thought, wow, that's generous. And, uh, and you know, I grew up Baptist in North Carolina. I, I had run into, you know, Catholic theologians in college. And I had, you know, met some Catholics sort of peripherally. But, um, but I, I, I didn't have much of a relationship with monastic communities. So I uh, traveled up there and got to know both the, the brothers at St. John's Abbey and the sisters over at their kind of sister community, St. Benedict's in Minnesota. And it became a important spiritual home for me in terms of recognizing that community in their tradition had always been tied to a disciplined life of prayer. There were practices that, you know, were all tied up with that in terms of gathering, uh, a community gathering for prayer and people having uh, space set a time for private and contemplative prayer. The prayer, when we gather together, is, you know, uh, built around the rhythms of the day. It's built around the psalms. It assumes that we, you know, eat together between prayers. And, um, uh, yeah, Benedict thought about all this in the rule, and that's a lot of what it's about. So, so yeah, that that's a sustaining practice for me. The rhythm of morning and evening prayer becomes a way of kind of rooting the day in the story of scripture, in the story of the church, in the story of the spirits moving in the world. I think it becomes a whole, like a practice of the understanding of who we are. Much of what we've talked about here in terms of all of us being people who are miracles, you know, created and crafted in the image of God and yet distorted and liable to uh, turn against the very things we were made for, all that's assumed in prayer, right? That you get up in the morning and you thank God for the gift of the day, God, you know, the creator. We sing every morning, you know, oh Lord, let my soul rise up to meet you as the day rises to meet the sun. We are the creation uh, in the light of the creator's goodness. But you end the day by repenting, you know, you, you you say, I've sinned. And that's not just sort of a general statement, but an invitation to examine, to ask, you know, what what are the patterns and practices of my life today that kept me from being all that God made me to be? And, you know, the desert mothers and fathers said, you, uh, you dig a shovel full of your grave every night. You know, you, Benedict said it, keep death before you every day. You, 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 you live your life in a constant awareness that, uh, um, you know, the, the, that every day's decisions and uh, every day's activities are, you know, weighed against a, uh, a, a, a certain finality and a certain uh, sense that, you know, life has a, totality to its meaning. Prayers, the other thing I would say that matters a great deal to me, they're in the prayers, but they stay with me through the day is the songs, songs that root us in the story. I was raised by people who sang a lot, and uh, I feel like the my soul resonates with the songs of the Freedom Church, and we sing a lot of those songs in morning prayer, and, um, and they stay with me quite a bit. I kind of hum them 
in uh, the background of my mind when I'm not humming them out loud. Imagine you and I are are talking uh, on the morning of November the fourth, the day after the election. What is a what is a faithful Christian response to the election? Of course, recognizing that we don't know what the outcome will will be. Well, I can tell you that my prayer will begin like I just told you. It begins every day. Oh Lord, let my soul rise up to meet you, as the day rises to meet the sun. My hope is that. Uh, on the morning of November 4th, much of what I have seen God doing and stirring uh, will be evident in the news. That is to say that, uh, that there will be an uprising of people. Uh, I'm not just talking about Christians. I'm talking about people who, out of genuine concern for the health and well-being of our common life, are uh, turning out in record numbers to say we want change. There will be people, many of them, as we've talked about here, you know, white Christian people who will be troubled and anxious about that and uh, will see it as a threat to them. And so my prayer is that in the after time, I do believe there will be a time after this when we look back on it with the sort of confusion and dismay that uh, many people look back on George Wallace and the Church of Alabama that uh, was so enthusiastic in its support, Methodist and Baptist, (laughs) um, of uh, not just segregation, but uh, but of a sort of full-throated and vigorous defense of segregation as a Christian way of life. I, I think people are confused and dismayed when they look back now on the redemption era in this country, and in particular when Christians are presented with the language that pastors used to talk about white supremacy as God's will when they were praying for and celebrating the overthrow of Reconstruction and that you know, basic statement of democracy and the participation of black people in our common life in the in the late 19th century. I really have no doubt that there will come a time when we look back and, and there's a general consensus um, that uh, this era like that is one in which people were led astray and caught up in uh, what I really feel like is a sort of madness, right? In the way that Paul, you know, writes and says to to the Galatians, you know, who has bewitched you? Who has captivated your mind? Who has, you know, caught you up in this madness? So my prayer in the midst of all that is that we can find a way toward redemption, true redemption, right? Redemption as, as a sort of, you know, restoration of ourselves to our humanity and uh, to a beloved community in which we can find ways to live together, not just because it's necessary, you know, in a limited space for people to be able to live together, but because life together is a gift. And that life together, even with the people that we've been pitted against and demonized, you know, taught to demonize, or people who've demonized us, that as a matter of fact, uh, we would be better and we would be more of what God made us to be if we could 
genuinely encounter one another, know one another in the fullness of our humanity. And I believe that's what beloved community is. So that's my prayer on November 4th and on every day until then, frankly. May God hasten that day. That's a a good word for us to end on. Jonathan, thank you so much. We're grateful. Good to be with you. Take care. That was so good. I didn't want it to end, but it has to, because that's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much to Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove for joining us for this conversation. We are so grateful to you, Jonathan, and cannot wait to have you back on the bench again in real time. All right, friends, if you like what you've heard so far, you know what to do. Hit that subscribe button to remain current on what's happening on the bench. And if you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts, make sure to rate and review this podcast. This helps us and it helps other listeners who are just now connecting with the Mourner's Bench. And don't forget, you can always drop a little love offering in the basket as it's passed by you by visiting patreon.com forward slash theolabmedia. Monthly donations start at $5. Brandon and I will be back next Tuesday. Yeah, we will. With our dear friend, Kalfani Lawson. Join us then. That's my duel. Peace. Peace.